Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Mark Lilla, a professor of the humanities at Columbia University and the author of a new and very controversial book, The Once and Future Liberal, After Identity Politics. Lilla is known for his writing on history and political philosophy. In his latest book, he pins many of the troubles of the Democratic Party on the rise of identity politics. He argues that Americans have become hostile to the way the left speaks and writes, and that, moreover, this is quoting him now, by the 1980s, identity politics had given way to a pseudo-politics of self-regard and increasingly narrow and exclusionary self-definition that is now cultivated in our colleges and universities. The main result, he writes, has been to turn young people back onto themselves rather than turning them outward towards the wider world. Mark Lilla joins us now from our New York studio to discuss all this. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Good to be here. So I want to talk about your book and about identity politics. And I was hoping to divide this conversation into two parts a little bit. The first about what you think has gone wrong and the second about how to fix things. So what exactly is your diagnosis of what has gone wrong with liberals since the 1960s in the United States and the consequences it's had politically? Yeah, well, I would really date the break uh, around 1980. Um, From uh, the New Deal, really, up until 1980, you can think of that as one era of American politics and American liberal politics. Uh, it uh, The sort of governing ideas were solid, uh, solidarity, equal protection under the law, uh, public duty, and there was a sense of the country pulling together ever since the Depression and Second World War to take care of each other. With the arrival of Reagan, there was what I call in the book a new dispensation so that certain assumptions about what matters in politics, what can be said, what is not said, what the terms of debate are, that all changed. And we went from a political vision of what we are as a country based on equal citizenship to an anti-political vision of the government being the problem, of people being solitary individuals in the market, in their families, in their churches, but without any common purpose as a nation. And at that moment, beginning in 1980, that was the moment when it was up to liberals to meet this anti-political vision of the country with a new political one that was adapted to the times and uh, and took in account all the mistakes and failures that had taken place before. We didn't do that. So let me let, let me just stop you for a second here. You're talking about a period between, let's say, 1932 and 1980, 48 years, that right. you feel that there was more of a common purpose and we were more united. So the, you're, you, in your argument— Well, even if we weren't united, the idea was to be united. The idea was that we stick together and we stand up for each other's rights and there's a national purpose to doing this. And you felt that that was the case during the 1960s? Well, uh, the, the you know the people who were active in the 1960s were at first appealing to that, right? That that here uh, we're supposed to be a country based on equality, and African Americans are not being treated equally, women are not being treated equally, poor people in the country uh, couldn't really 
exercise their, their citizenship and be part of the country uh, because of, of their poverty. So that was the tail end of this great period in American history. Right. But that period, as you just acknowledged, I mean, the, the majority of that period, we had segregation in this country, for example. Oh, right. I, I'm not talking about the reality on the ground. I'm talking about the way we thought about the reality on the ground. The but, reason we fought in the civil rights movement isn't because of difference. We fought for equal rights because every citizen, by virtue of being a citizen, deserved to have those rights. And so the language we employed on the left was that of equal citizenship and solidarity. And when you lose that language— then you no longer have a weapon. The word we is the most important word in the democratic lexicon. If you cannot appeal to that, you cannot rally people. I want to read you a quote from the book and our, our audience a quote from the book because your book really is about this kind of post-Reagan era. Here's what you write. What's extraordinary and appalling about the past four decades of our history is that our politics have been dominated by two ideologies that encourage and even celebrate the unmaking of citizens. So that's basically what you've been saying. On the right, an ideology that questions the existence of a common good and denies our obligations to help fellow citizens through government action if necessary. On the left, an ideology institutionalized in colleges and universities that fetishizes our individual and group attachments, applauds self-absorption, and casts a shadow of suspicion over any application of a universal democratic we. Okay? I guess what I'm unclear about is how you can say those are the two dominant ideologies of the last 40 years, when as far as I can tell, one of them is indeed a dominant ideology, the right, from Reagan on, all the way through Trump. And the other is an ideology on college campuses. I don't really see it reflected in democratic politics. I certainly don't see it reflected in the two democratic presidents of those 40 years, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, oh, well, I think you're right about the two presidents example. Certainly the upper reaches of the Democratic Party are affected by this. Uh, I've been talking to a lot of Democratic donors since um, since my article last year that was the basis of the book. And a lot of them have expressed their frustration to me that it's very hard to rally people and come to a common program without checking all the boxes of all the groups that have to be consulted and have to be mentioned. This is donors who are way. telling you this? Yeah, donors and yeah, and also journalists who who, who cover the party. Um but but Bill Clinton and Barack Obama are, are interesting because they resisted this. But doesn't that doesn't that suggest it's not a dominant ideology if it really has no place in the ruling uh, repertoire of you know one? Well, side we of had the a lot of we had a lot of losing Democratic candidates along the way. Sure, but right? I don't think don't it's fair to say that. that Al Gore, John Kerry, was uh, putting forth. Uh, an ideology institutionalized in colleges and universities that fetishizes our individual and group attachments. Oh, I, th I think they're susceptible. I, I guess it's more, I, I guess the way I would put it, I'm glad you're asking this, is that they become susceptible to the claims of these groups that are, that are focused on, not only focused on, you know, the, the particular identity issues, 
but also uh, have a stake in looking at the world this way. Look, movement politics, what is movement politics about? Movement politics is about speaking truth to power. Electoral politics is about seizing power in order to defend the truth. Now, when people are in movement politics, they have this mentality that, and, and that's the reason they're successful. It's the only issue that matters. They're maximalists about this. They don't like to compromise, and that's why certain things happen. And that's why certain things in the 60s happened, because social movements made a real contribution there in breaking the logjam of electoral politics and affecting change in this country. But there comes a time when we are now or have been in a different period since 1980 where the the energy of the right has been directed into electoral politics and they dominate the country right now. And the democratic energies are dissipated by this movement mentality and it's very hard for people to get along. Just, you know, they're an example that you know what happened at the beginning of the organizing of the Women's March after after uh, Trump's Trump's election. It was a very simple idea. This woman in Hawaii posts something on social media saying, we should just all go to Washington and we ought to demonstrate against this president who's spoken about women the way he has, has acted the way he has, and to make our voices heard. What could be simpler? What a simple way to rally people around the country. And immediately what happened? The she was criticized because she hadn't created a committee that was multicultural. But, uh, Mark, everyone, everyone had to had to feel included, and the sure, thing but, really ground to a halt. Okay, but wait, but it happened. It was one of the biggest marches of the modern era, and I think broadly considered a giant success. Oh well, it it was with us. It certainly was. But for instance, for. Uh, you know, there was one feminist group uh, that's also religious that um, is is pro-life. And they were originally accepted into the coalition. And when it was discovered that they were there by other groups, they were disinvited. And this happens this happens in public. I mean, this was on Fox News every night. The question that I'm I'm, I'm trying to, to get here is that it seems to me that the biggest issue of the last, I don't know, uh, 40 years, whatever you want to say, is that we have this left and the right, and the right's um, lunacy on its side is <sighs> – is shown in electoral politics that the connection between the the movement right and its craziness and the Republican Party as it exists in 2017 is extremely close. We just have a, we have a president who's sympathetic to white supremacy, which is beyond even most of the you know right wing activists. And on the left, we have a situation where, broadly speaking, there are activists from Antifa people to you know much more centrist Democrats, the donors you talk to, and. They don't seem to it, – it doesn't seem to reflect itself, the craziness in democratic politics. We've had Barack Obama. We've had Hillary Clinton. We've had John Kerry. We've had people who are good and bad candidates, but there's no kind of uh, ideological extremism there. And certainly governing, there's no ideological extremism. That seems to me like the story of the last 40 years. Well, uh, if you just focus on the presidency, you could tell a story like that. But as you know – Two-thirds of the state legislatures in this country are controlled by Republicans. They hold two-thirds of the governorships. 
They hold 24 states outright. And if they win two more, they can call a constitutional convention. All the rights that movement politics people and identity politics people have fought for are under siege at the state level. Uh, There's rollback on union rights. There's rollback on voting rights for African-Americans. There's rollback on abortion. There's a constitutional right to abortion in this country, and there are parts of the country where you cannot get one. And why is that? Because we are not competitive in these places, because people have walked away from us because of the way we talk, because of the things that are seeming contempt for them. Are, and, and when you ask them, when you ask them about identity issues that people are not voting for us and ask them about what they perceive as political correctness, they respond. I mean, you only have to look at polls about this. And it's a great recruiting tool for the right. Now, unless you assume that all of white America is racist and lost and cannot be saved. Only about half. Yeah. If, you, if, if you don't assume that then you know that there are a lot of people who we could reach and we must reach because this is a democracy, a federated democracy, which means if you are not competitive at the state and local level, you can't protect anything that movement politics achieves. Right. Well, Institutional we- politics trump movement politics always. We totally agree that the Democrats are in a very bad situation and they need to do better. And there are voters who they've lost, who they should pull back, whether you think they're racist or they hate political correctness too much. They need to win these voters because they need to win elections. And I totally agree. Some elements of the left probably turn many of those voters off. And that's something to think about. I guess what I'm trying to understand is exactly why they've drifted away and whether the focus on identity politics is is really the reason that they've drifted away. But I, I want to. So, I mean, let's let's talk more about this, which is um, I, I guess I guess what I'm wondering is, as I said before, Fox News will always find a segment. We just had eight years of a Democratic presidency, which I think most people found broadly successful, which most Americans found broadly successful. And despite that, despite the fact that the president never, never, never engaged in the identity politics things that you're talking about, at least as far as I can think about. And in fact, went way out of his way not to do that. Why does that not have any effect on the American people? And why is it something on a college campus you think is what's driving them into the arms of Republicans? Oh, I'm not saying there's one cause for this. I mean, there there are very many causes, right? But I make two cases about identity politics. One is that the explicit calling out of groups and not including everybody is- What what do you mean by that? uh, Give an example of that. An example is every time Hillary Clinton went out on the stump, she would call out to various groups, to women, to Latinos, to African-Americans, to immigrants. And she left out a about 40% of the country in doing that. And, uh, you know, and she lost people, you know, 51% of American women voted for Donald Trump. Something is going on there. And it's it's not just a question that people react explicitly to identity politics. What I really write about in the book is that it keeps us focused on movement politics and moral victories rather than political victories. With the rise, every increase 
in identity consciousness on the left has been followed by a decrease in practical political consciousness. We've gotten used to noble defeats, and I am sick to death of noble defeats. Donald Trump is in the White House. We are losing most of the country now at the state level, and we have some serious work to do to find a language that everyone can relate to and see themselves in. And that's why I'm arguing for returning for the, to this democratic we, not putting it in scare quotes. It's an important weapon for us. And to address citizens as citizens on the two principles that we've always stood for, solidarity and equal rights, people can resonate to that. I, I and get, then we can explain yeah. what that means for every particular group. Do you think that there's a danger in looking at sort of very carefully what politicians are saying and what message they're spent sending very specifically with their words or what rationally voters want to hear when the country just elected a bigoted maniac who talks off the top of his head and doesn't make any sense half the time? I'm not sure I understood the question. Well, I'm saying that you're saying, you know, Hillary Clinton said X in a speech or Democrats should say Y when they're talking, you know, in some speech. It it all, whether you think that's right or wrong, it it, it makes a certain sort of rational sense. Like you send this message to, you know, appeal to people and they're going to respond to this very kind of thoughtful thing about citizenship. It just seems like that's a very rational way of looking at it when we've just elected this guy who speaks off the cuff, doesn't really make any sense, says all kinds of things, doesn't have any sort of inclusive message. And the country just went for him. It makes me think, well, maybe kind of a clear message about citizenship and we and so on is not actually a brilliant political strategy. Or if it is, it's just hard to know because Trump has scrambled all these categories. Well, look, two things happen in politics and in elections. One is the day-to-day workings and the horse race that goes on. But something else happens at various conjunctures in history, and that's that a new vision of the country, a certain way of looking at it, gets born. And you can't predict it. You can't plan it. It has to do with social reality and forces at the time. It has to do with a certain political leader who can articulate it. Roosevelt offered a new picture of America that everyone had to work within. Even even, uh, Eisenhower had to work within. Even Nixon had to work within. He he had to offer, he did offer, a guaranteed minimum income and, and health insurance for everybody. Those were the terms of debate. With Reagan, that vision of what the country was changed. Right, but... Now, that vision has died in this election because, as you pointed out, Donald Trump wiped the floor with these people. What what we do not offer and Republicans used to offer is a picture of the country we want to create and that picture that people can see themselves in. We're not even in the game. We have dropped out of the contest for the American imagination. You say we a lot in the book, as you're saying now, which I I, I get. But I I just want to go back to this point because I I, I want your response to it, which is that we, to use a loaded term, we just had uh, the most rhetorically – you're talking about rhetoric partially – rhetorically gifted president in my lifetime, certainly maybe in yours, who talked a lot about one America – 
who talked about uniting us, who made this, in fact, this was his defining political identity from when he came on the scene in 2004, who gave endless speeches about this for eight years and was popular. So when you say that Democrats or we have turned away from this, I don't know what that means after eight years of a presidency that is, by and large, did exactly what you're asking for. Well, right, because he's he's fighting against this inertia and this resistance in the country. I feel that you're you're confusing the need to assert a program and fight for a program and its success out there. Obama did the right thing. I mean, he could have gone further. You know, he always said, that's not who we are. Well, who are we then? What do you mean by we? We're not to the point where we can offer a positive vision of the kind of country and on what principles that we want to create. But we're also, we've got a, we, now my way, I'm talking about liberals and progressives. We've got a daddy complex about the presidency. We always turn to presidential elections, for examples. That's not where the action is. The action, we have had two Democratic presidents since Reagan who were stymied at every turn by Congress, a Republican Supreme Court, and state and local governments. That's where the battle is. And you have to reach people out there. We have, we have to get outside of our two-coast bubble. We need to be able to go to places where the Wi-Fi sucks, where you don't want to take a picture of your dinner, where you'll be sitting with people who are giving thanks to God for that dinner, and they're not worried about whether spaghetti and meatballs is cultural appropriation. You're, you're acting a little bit as if there are like local Democratic candidates who are telling voters that like eating meatballs is cultural appropriation, or like Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi is telling people that they shouldn't eat Italian food because that's offensive or whatever it is. It's like, I don't know... Like, I'm sure there are stupid people online who have some stupid comment about meatballs. Like, I have no doubt that you could find that. And I have no doubt on college campuses where you now spend more of your time than I do, that there's all kinds of silliness going on all the time. And I understand how that's broadcast in right-wing media. But, I, I mean, I just, who's sending the message that the Democratic Party cares about cultural appropriation of meatballs or that local candidates do or governor can, candidates for governor. Again, that's not that that's that's not my point. Certainly this is fodder for Fox News and it's not sufficient to say they'll always find something. Look, I, I want them eating, you know, searching the garbage cans for something, not feeding them it on a plate. No. What I'm saying is that the focus on identity and groups has prevented Democrats and liberals and progressive together from thinking it's a mentality question. Thinking right. about the need to develop a message, and we have an allergy to the word "we." Right. I, I guess I just it's it's. Um, I'm just not sure who's focusing on groups. I mean, you've quoted a Hillary Clinton speech where you know where she would mention other groups, but broadly speaking, it seemed like she was offering a program that said every American should have health care, every American should have a right to good education, every Amer whatever, you know, whatever the Democratic agenda of the day is. I'm not saying obviously the Hillary Clinton campaign was screwed up in all kinds of ways and there are all sorts of things that could change. But I, I guess my, my main concern is that, I mean, do you feel at all that maybe you're taking what's going on in college campuses and kind of uh, putting that onto the country as a whole or the Democratic Party as a whole? Well, given the fact that liberal elites in this country, and not just in the party, but also in the media, in the legal profession, uh, are produced by the university now. I mean, the Democratic Party, its elites used to be mayors, 
governors, county commissioners, union officials, people who, and farmers who were shaped by those experiences out in the world. After the 72 election, the changes in the rules, those people were pushed out of power. And now it's the college educated uh, who run the party and are the leading figures in American progressivism and liberalism. They come out of this university. And this way of looking at politics uh, rubs off on them. That's a fair point. I mean, I was, but I was struck by something in your, I just want to read one more quote from your book and then maybe you can talk about it. It says, as a teacher, I'm increasingly struck by a difference between my conservative and progressive students. Contrary to the stereotype, the conservatives are far more likely to connect their engagements to a set of political ideas and principles. Young people on the left are much more inclined to say that they are engaged in politics as an X, concerned about other X's and those issues touching on Xness, and they are less and less comfortable with debate. Um, I mean, obviously, that's interesting. I'd love for you to talk about your experience and, uh, well, tell me, tell me about your experience with that and why you think that is. Well, you know, it, it, it comes in directly and indirectly. I mean, I happen to teach subjects where uh, this doesn't always this doesn't always come up, but you know, I see it in students who just come in to meet me. Activists on campus who are former students of mine or will eventually take take uh, a class with me. You know, conservatives, um, ever since the 80s, um, they produce their cadres, their intellectual cadres, outside the university. So there are think tanks. There are summer education programs where kids get paid to go and they read – Aristotle and they read the Federalist Papers and they read Hayek and they're taught that it all connects. They get a kind of fairy tale version of how all these ideas connect. Uh, they have their own magazines and they're outside of the university and they've created cadres who educate kids and also educate them to be interested in, frankly, political philosophy. That used to, that certainly was true of my generation. That you know, uh, I went to college in the 1970s, and we were taking courses on Marx, and we were taking courses on on Hegel, and and we were trying to make sense of the world out there, and we we had big explanations, right, of how everything hung together, and we could argue every every principle. We were outside of ourselves. We didn't talk about ourselves as individuals much, at least the people I hung around at the University of Michigan, which was a very political place. That's not the case today. To me, the moment, though, that, would, that I would get um, more scared by what you're saying, and, and again, maybe that moment is going to come, is that... You talk about, you know, the conservatives being more likely to connect their ideas to a set of their engagements to a set of political ideas and principles and that they are willing to engage in debate and all of these things. And it, it again, like, I mean, to me, the, the sort of interesting thing about that, though, is most of these liberal kids that you taught who are closed minded in some way went on to probably vote for Bernie Sanders and then Hillary Clinton and most of the right-wing kids probably went on to vote for sort of a crazy bigot who has no sense of political ideas or principles and doesn't care about any of these things at all and is just a demagogue. And so it, it's that these things are not represented politically or manifested politically in some way 
sort of makes me less concerned about it. I mean, is your concern that eventually the Democratic Party is going to develop its own Donald Trump type figure who is close to debate and doesn't want to hear opposing views and has an authoritarian personality? No, I worry that we're creating a generation of liberals who are not prepared to articulate a vision based on principle that people will be attracted to on the one hand, and on the other hand, are not capable of thinking practically politically about going out across the country in every county in the country and making the case. You know, these these intellectual organizations matter. How do you think we got Neil Gorsuch? It's not just that Trump became president. He's a product of the Federalist Society. And I'm not sure all your listeners know what the Federal Society Federalist Society oh, is. Oh, come on. We have we have a we have genius listeners. But go ahead. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll for, for, for for the one who 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 was out to lunch that day or miss school that day. The Federalist Society is a student organization that receives funding from all sorts of conservative foundations. And uh, it's for law students, mainly. And uh, they run seminars on the American Constitution. They run talks. Uh, they run events at the university. They go to summer camp together. And, and the Federalist Society has created a huge network of lawyers and public officials and judges who have been shaped by their education in college and in, in law school because of this organization. And that has prepared them to act together as a real force in the interpretation of law in this country and in the ideological balance of the courts in the country. These things eventually matter. Right, but they're not putting forward a kind of common idea of we. They're just a well-organized interest group, which I agree the left could use. No, well, you haven't been to their events then. If you go to their events, just go to, you know, go to a college and they're always running something at a law school or something like that. And they're talking about, they're talking about the Constitution to begin with and what it means and what representative government means and what rule by the people means. But if any of these, to have, if any of these concepts was why people voted, then how did the Republicans end up with Donald Trump? If these higher, these lofty ideals and like, I mean, I, I agree with you that like the left needs to organize the way the Federalist Society does. I totally think that's absolutely correct. They've done an incredible job over the last several decades. I just, I'm just not sure the connection between that and, uh, I mean, there's a connection between that and political power and using political power, but I'm not sure what it has to do with kind of the rhetoric and that you want liberals or Democrats to put forward, if that makes sense. These people are very articulate about conservative principles when it comes to the law. And they have become hugely important as an intellectual force because they're, frankly, serious people who are making these arguments. Um, and we don't create that kind of environment. Um, there, there's, no, there, there's nothing like that. I'll give you another example. Um, I write in the book about the websites of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. You look at the website of the Republican Party and smack in the middle of it is a list of 11 principles, 11 sentences of what we stand for. And that's the product of thought and that's the product of a lot of debates that happen in the conservative movement. Until a few weeks ago, if you looked at the Democratic Party website, you would find no such statement. Instead, you would go to the bottom and find a link to 17 different groups, most of them identity groups. That's our 
ability to articulate a vision. Now, when Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi came out with their new program for the Democrats, now that's in the middle. But it's not a list of just 11 principles. It's a laundry list of different sorts of policies, a lot of them economic policies, some of them having to do with identity issues, but not largely. It is, it's a mess. It's a mess. And it doesn't cohere because there's no sense of a governing principle behind but it. Wait, you the think, Republicans you think the Re- have that. You think the Republican Party right now under Donald Trump coheres in ideology or in, in message or in anything? Well, no, they, have, they are collapsing right now, not because they're not coherent, but because their coherence doesn't bear any or much, uh, much uh, it doesn't reflect a lot of social reality. But you keep coming back to Trump. Trump is not the issue. Well, he is president. Trump is not the Trump is not. He's only president. That's my point. He's only president. And we learned under Obama and under Bill Clinton, that presidents only have so much power and presidential elections follow their own rhythm. We've got to get off this daddy complex about the president. Famous That's last words. where the power lies. Famous last words when North Korea nukes us, he's only president. But no, I'm kidding. I agree with you that uh, we need to think beyond the presidency. I think you're absolutely right. I think our disagreement is just over how to do that and why the Democrats haven't done that. Um, I would point to some of the things you're saying, but also... Things like gerrymandering, things like lack of local organizing, things like the fact that there are way more Republican states, so there are, um, uh, you know, it's much harder to win control of the Senate and so on. Um, but yeah, I just, but, the, but they weren't, but they weren't always Republican states. That's the thing to, to remind yourself of. A lot of them used to be Democratic states. Well, that that is a good segue into our final question because um, the one thing I maybe disagreed with your book about the most was that that sort of bigger question of why all these. Former Democratic states are now Republican states. And it just seems to me that the overwhelming answer to that question is race, which is not something you talk particularly about in the book. And I I mean, do do you not see kind of what's happened racially post the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act in this country as being the primary driver of the fact that a majority of states now are Republican states, which was not the case in, you know, uh, 50, 60 years ago? Oh, I certainly do not. You don't think race is I, the central reason? The central reason? Not at all. Not at all. Just go out there. It's not the central reason. What, look, go look out at, there? L- look at survey data. Yeah, go out there. I mean, I, let me tell you. I grew up in Macomb County, Michigan, which is a blue-collar county right at the border of Detroit. Now, um, in the early 1960s, that it's known as the home of the Reagan Democrats. It's been studied to death. In the early 60s, it was the most liberal county in the United uh, suburban county in the United States. By 1972, it had gone for Nixon and it never looked back. Now, I, where I grew up, it was blue collar and blue collar ethnic, and there was a lot of racism, no doubt about that. But what was motivating them? What was motivating them was lots of issues. They felt they weren't being heard. They resented the college kids who were spitting on the flag when a lot of their sons were coming home in coffins that were draped in that flag. I had a paper route, and I'd look at all the stars in the window. I was an altar boy. I served at, uh, at the funerals. There was a deep cultural resentment that built up because they felt that the country they loved and the kind of way of life that they were attached to 
was treated with contempt. It's a complicated thing. Trust me. I agree that it's complicated, but I mean, the entire South used to be Democratic. Now the entire South is Republican. And we know when that switch broadly occurred. Yes. Well, right. I mean, yes, the Southern strategy, right, played some some role in that. But that's not how you win local elections. It's not how you capture the governorship. No, of course it's not. not. It's not how it happens. Well, right. But I mean, it's that. It's it's the way people. You're right that it's tra- It's not just directly consciously about race, but it's also about, as you say, how people feel about their country. Make America great again. All of these ideas and what they play into. And I think we know very well what they play into. I mean, Trump with his own base has played on these things masterfully. But I, I I just don't see how you can't think that all these things are intricately affiliated with race. And with of the course, way white Americans, the way white Americans see their country, the way they perceive of black people, the way they perceive as, you know, whether it's immigrants getting their jobs or whatever it is. I mean, it just seems that all of this stuff. And again, the, the reason the Democratic Party is no longer what it was in certain ways, even though I mean, it, even though, as you say, it has had success in presidential elections, but not elsewhere, is that the vast, vast, vast majority of the South is now strongly Republican in terms of senators, in terms of governors, and in terms of how it votes in presidential elections and in terms of state legislatures. And I, I mean, I, I just I can't believe that you don't think that race is the primary driver of that over the last 50 years. But I mean, maybe we disagree. No, we do disagree. And, I, and frankly, I have to say, I feel you're illustrating my point. The fact that liberals have gotten so focused, there's become, even in the past three years, there, there's been a kind of his, you know, America hasn't changed that much. We had the problem before. We have the problem now. But there's been a kind of slightly hysterical tone about race that leads us to overestimate its significance. Mark, we have in a racist in, president in, who won't condemn particular thing. You're saying people are overreacting to race? No, no. Overreacting in the sense that we are thinking that it's moving more than it's moving. And that's psychologically not how it works. You know, Marxists are much more on point here. Their argument has always been that people become racist. And I mean, there are lots of reasons why they do, but the people who might be on the edge are drawn to racist rhetoric and anti-immigrant rhetoric. It's because they've been economically disenfranchised. And so they look for a scapegoat. And so the real problems are economic. I think they're closer to the truth right now than to think that somehow just some racist demon is 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 uh, directing everything in this country. Look, it's just not where the country is. Look, I agree that that politicians need to find a way to talk to voters who have unseemly views of all sorts and find need to find a way to win them over. And for the sake of governing the country, I totally get that. I guess we just disagree um, on on what's behind some of these voters voting, regardless of what they say to survey data or even what they consciously feel. I mean, and I just think this last election is a is a great example of that. But let that not distract from you, Mark Lilla, a professor of humanities at Columbia University, and his new book is The Once and Future Liberal After Identity Politics. Mark, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed debating these issues with you. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me on. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you're in the Bay Area, I've got a live show coming up at Books, Inc. in San Francisco on September 26th. I'll be interviewing my former boss, Franklin Foer, about his new book, World Without Mind. The book's about the existential threat of big tech. 
To make sure you get a seat, head to booksinc.net. That's booksinc.net.